Hello, and welcome back to another episode of In Summation, The Final Word, a podcast for inquisitive minds on real-life courtroom drama. As always, I'm your host, Paul Townsend, and I'm happy to bring you today's installment. In this show, my goal has been to examine some of the famous cases that have gone to trial and provide some context, background, and explanation of the arguments by the attorneys to help lay people, or at the very least, people who are in this industry but who don't have the specific familiarity with these cases. And I want to help you get an understanding of why the verdicts went the way they did. It's been my experience practicing criminal law for so many years that a lot of people understandably rely on contemporaneous media sources for what's going on in big, high-profile trials. The average person has neither the time nor the inclination to actually watch the trials themselves. And on top of that, the vast majority of trials are not televised. So often, reading news articles or blog posts or YouTube clips of journalists afterwards is really the only way to follow along, even for those who are interested. The problem is that more and more, these accounts are flawed. They don't accurately convey what's really happening. They skew towards a desired outcome, and they editorialize based on who the journalist believes to be right and who they believe to be wrong. Now, in that sense, it becomes difficult to follow exactly what the arguments are because you really need a deep understanding to be able to parse through the articles and figure out what the parties are actually saying. So I do my best to present an unbiased view of what really happened. And so if you are quick to point out what you perceive to be my unconscious leanings and feel that I'm too kind or too cruel to certain people, but I think, I think most of you agree that generally speaking, I do my level best to offer as close to a dispassionate view of these trials and the merits of the arguments offered in them. Today, we're going to do something a little different. Typically, we look at trials. We discuss the opening statements, the witnesses, the evidence, the arguments that are made, and the summations. Often, we also discuss the pretrial posture. If there were big battles on certain evidence being admissible or inadmissible, if some expert was used. But it always seems to come down to the trial. In today's case, there was no trial. We're going to be talking about a case that ended up in a plea. I don't usually do this, but for today's case, I think it's worthwhile to discuss it because even though there was a plea here, there is still a lot to unpack about this case. You're going to get a bit of a snapshot into the world of plea deals and sentencing, which I will do my level best to make interesting and not put anyone to sleep. But this episode also gives perhaps a more accurate presentation of how most criminal cases resolve. Trials are actually very rare. The vast majority of cases are disposed of with some sort of plea agreement. So in a very real sense, today's episode will provide some actual insight into what a true criminal practice looks like. And often as a defense attorney evaluating a case, we progress down the following path. We meet with a potential client. We get a basic sense of the story. 
Sometimes they'll bring the complaint or the indictment with them so we can get a sense of what they're actually being accused of. Pretty much every single initial meeting with a potential client involves the following question. Do you think we can win? Do you think we can get the case dismissed? Do you think I'm screwed here? Some variation of that question almost inevitably comes up. And the answer is always the same. I can't say with any degree of confidence how your case is going to go until I get my hands on the discovery. The government, whether that's the U.S. Attorney's Office or the local district attorney's office, is required to turn over the evidence that they have against the defendant after the person is arrested and arraigned. Now, that gives a defense lawyer a real sense of just how strong the prosecution's case is. And that also gives the defense lawyer the ability to focus on where their efforts should go. It's very difficult to craft a defense without knowing what the prosecutor is going to argue at trial. And once you have the evidence, you can get a feel for the strength of the case against your client, and that feeds into the conversations with the client about taking a plea deal or going to trial. The weaker the evidence, the stronger the negotiating position for a plea deal, or the more compelling a trial defense. Sometimes, after you've received all the evidence, you've digested it, analyzed it, gone through it with the client, you see one particular avenue, one path that could potentially lead to the case being dismissed. Sometimes it's a questionable search, or maybe you can show the cops were dishonest when applying for a warrant, or a photo array was laid out such that one person was clearly different from all the others. Whatever it is, you see the issue, you know that it's worth filing a motion to dismiss, but if that motion is denied, then there's sufficient evidence to convict your client. And at the end of the day, the decision on whether to plead guilty or not is exclusively the client's. As a lawyer, I get to determine what the trial strategy is, but it's the client who determines whether we go to trial or plead guilty. I can offer guidance and counsel on that question, but I always make it clear it's your case, it's your life, and under the law, it's your decision. You say we fight at trial, then we fight at trial, even if I think it's a bad idea. You say you want this over and get you a deal, then I will make you the best deal possible, even if I think our chances at trial make it worth it. Today's case grabbed national headlines when the arrests were made. And there were a lot of arrests made. But for the sake of making the discussion manageable, we're going to focus on the actions of just a few representative individuals. We're going to discuss fraud. We're going to discuss the difficult conversations between attorneys and clients when the case hinges on a single issue in a motion. We're going to discuss plea deals. And we're going to talk about sentencing and importantly, we're going to talk about how evidence is assessed. In 2012, a nonprofit corporation called the Key Worldwide Foundation, or KWF, was founded. The following year, it received tax-exempt status as a 501c3 organization, meaning that the organization itself paid no taxes and any contributions or donations to the organization from taxable income could be deducted. The founder of KWF was a man named William Singer, and he went by Rick. 
And Rick Singer, through KWF, provided a very specific service. For the right price, KWF would find creative and illegal ways to get kids into select prestigious universities and colleges. Federal agents were tipped off to Rick Singer's activities and launched an investigation. The investigation was named Operation Varsity Blues, and it became the largest college admission scandal prosecution in U.S. history. Many wealthy people were caught lying, cheating, and bribing their way into getting their kids coveted spots at top universities. And one individual who got caught up in all of this was the actress who played Rebecca Donaldson Katsopoulos, a.k.a. Aunt Becky from Full House, who, along with her husband, Massimo Giannoli, paid half a million dollars to ensure that their two daughters got into the University of Southern California. This is the United States v. Lori Laughlin and others. Lori Loughlin began her acting career in a made-for-TV movie in 1979. She had bit parts in a few minor productions until she scored a recurring role in the soap opera The Edge of Night from 1980 to 1984. She's listed as being in 573 episodes. She had a number of other television single appearances and made-for-television movie roles until she landed the role as Aunt Becky in Full House from 1988 to 1995. She played the wholesome wife of Uncle Jesse, played by John Stamos. She was a very popular main character for the duration of the show. Lachlan really rose to prominence from this role, and once Full House ended, she was immediately picked up for the TV series Hudson Street and was in 22 episodes between 1995 and 96 before the series was canceled. Between 96 and 2008, there were a series of small parts, a recurring role here and there, but nothing that had the popularity and staying power of Full House. But in 2008, Lachlan was cast as Debbie Wilson in the reboot of 90210, which ran for five years. She then reprised her role as Aunt Becky in Fuller House, the short-lived spinoff of Full House from 2016 to 2018. Lachlan's IMDb page is more robust than I expected when I checked, but it's pretty clear that she's always going to be remembered first and foremost as the good, wholesome, moral Aunt Becky Katsopoulos. So how did this moderately successful actress find herself on the business end of the Varsity Blues Federal Criminal Investigation? In 1997, on Thanksgiving, Lachlan married her second husband, Massimo Giannulli, after the two eloped. She had been divorced the prior year from Michael Burns after a seven-year marriage. Some of you listeners may be familiar with Massimo Giannulli, as he's the creator of the fashion brand Massimo. I confess that in my teens, I owned several articles of Massimo clothing. The marriage produced two children, two daughters. I'm not going to go into the kids' names. A very simple Google search will reveal them if you want. I'm aware they're not minors. I'm aware they're public figures. But it's my personal philosophy that when the kids are even tangentially related to the criminal act, especially if they really didn't do anything wrong themselves, I don't give out their names. It's not challenging at all to find them if you're so inclined. Have at it. 
Lachlan and her family were living in Los Angeles, and her daughters were getting to be college-aged. They're a couple years apart. Lachlan and Giannulli are typical parents in many regards. They wanted the best for their kids. They wanted their kids to go to good schools so that they would have the best opportunities to be successful in life. As the parent of a nine and soon-to-be seven-year-old, I understand the desire to give your kids everything you can to help clear their path. But in many ways, Lachlan and Giannulli were not typical parents. The most significant way was that they are decidedly not average in that they are richer than most of the rest of us. And they had a problem. Lachlan had her sights set on her kids attending the University of Southern California. And her kids were likely not great candidates to get into that school on their own. So Lachlan did what many parents would do in this situation. She spoke to some of her friends to see what they thought about how she could improve her kids' candidacies. One of her friends told her, hey, there's a guy named Rick Singer who's a creative genius at getting kids into schools that would typically be considered a reach. It's not clear whether Lachlan knew at the outset that Singer's methods would be illegal, but it became fairly obvious pretty quickly. Singer told Lachlan that the way to get her daughters admitted to USC was through an athletic scholarship with the crew team. Here's the problem. Neither of Lachlan's daughters were part of any crew team or had any crew experience at all. So Singer and Lachlan created a fake crew profile for her kids. They took some stage photos of the kids in what appeared to be crew meets in crew uniforms and made it appear as though they were on the LA Marina Club crew team. She also had photos taken of them in workout clothing on an erg machine, which is a rowing workout machine. That would have been bad enough, but it gets worse. Singer then made contact with the senior women's athletic director at USC, Donna Heinel. Singer instructed Lachlan and Giannulli to send a $50,000 payment to Heinel directly. They then paid Singer an additional $200,000, and they did this for each kid. So a total of $100,000 to Heinel and a total of $400,000 to Singer. The payments to Heinel ensured that the children would be accepted on a crew scholarship, despite not having any actual rowing crew experience or being a part of any crew team. It was a bribe, plain and simple. The $400,000 paid to Singer was not given to him directly. It was paid to the key Worldwide Foundation, KWF, which was, again, Singer's charity. But Singer was clearly the beneficiary of the payments. KWF was then audited, and questions were asked about the two separate $200,000 payments from Lachlan and Giannulli. Singer told Lachlan that if they were asked to say nothing about the daughters going to USC and say it was a charitable donation to help underserved kids get into college. Between 2011 and 2018, Rick Singer was paid more than $25 million by approximately 33 wealthy parents to get their kids into the schools of their choice. And in March 2019, this all came crashing down. On March 12, 2019, the federal government in the District of Massachusetts unsealed an indictment for 53 people in all, including Singer, Lachlan, and Giannulli. 
The chief prosecutor on this case was a man named Andrew Lelling, the U.S. attorney for the District of Massachusetts from 2017 until 2021. A career public servant, he graduated from Binghamton University undergraduate and then from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Go Quakers! He clerked for federal judge Barry Edenfield in the Southern District of Georgia, worked as an assistant attorney general in the Civil Rights Division, and as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia. He then became the United States attorney for the District of Massachusetts. Lelling charged Lachlan and Junuli with mail fraud and wire fraud. He claimed that the payments to KWF were purportedly charitable donations, even though KWF did not provide any of the goods or services it purported to. Instead, the payments were for backdoor methods of getting kids from wealthy families into colleges of their choice through lies, deceit, and bribery. They were also charged with federal programs bribery since USC is a state school that accepts federal money. When they paid Heinel, they were essentially bribing an agent of the government since USC accepts federal funds. The government had the emails between Singer and Lachlan and Ginuli. They had the call logs. They had text messages. They could pretty conclusively prove how the scheme worked, who paid who, when, and why. The chief lawyers for Lachlan were William Track and Sean Berkowitz from the law firm Latham & Watkins. Track was a Boston lawyer, so he's in Massachusetts, but Berkowitz was coming in from Chicago. An attorney not admitted in the jurisdiction where the case is taking place can appear and work on a specific case despite not being admitted generally. That's called being admitted pro hoc vice. A local attorney admitted in that jurisdiction can sponsor an attorney who's not admitted in that jurisdiction, and the court will then permit the foreign attorney to participate in that one particular case, despite not technically being admitted. It happens all the time. Giannulli also used Track and Berkowitz, but both he and Lachlan each had a few other lawyers involved as advisors on the side. Now, at first blush you might see the evidence that the government had. The documents, the logs, the bank statements, the copies of the checks, the testimony from people who pleaded guilty early, including Rick Singer. And you might think that Lachlan and Giannulli are just dead in the water. They have no chance. You could be forgiven for thinking there's simply no argument to be made to get them out of this. In cases where there is simply no defense, sometimes the best strategy is try to get the best deal you can, right? But one of the great things about really good defense lawyers is that sometimes they can come up with novel and creative arguments, especially when it seems like all hope is lost. The lawyers for Lachlan and Giannulli teamed up with the lawyers for a number of the other defendants, banded together, and jointly filed a motion to dismiss. Essentially, The argument they put forth was that even if one were to accept all of the allegations made by the government as true, it wouldn't be a violation of federal law. It wouldn't be mail fraud and it wouldn't be wire fraud. Federal criminal law does not authorize 
the policing of every form of unethical conduct. This case, the defense attorneys argued, represented yet another instance of overzealous overreach into conduct which, while admittedly unsavory, was definitely not criminal. The crux of the argument is that in order for a person to have committed mail fraud or wire fraud, the individual who stands accused must have attempted to obtain money or property. The Supreme Court clarified in a case titled Cleveland v. United States that the definition of money or property extended only to those traditional definitions of those terms. So according to the defense attorney's admission to a university or college was simply not property in the traditional sense, and therefore obtaining admission slots could not satisfy the elements for the statutes charging fraud. The defense attorneys then cited another case, United States v. Plyler. The Supreme Court determined in that matter that telling lies in an application to gain admission to the federal civil service did not deprive the government of property in the fraudulent meaning of the word. Since the parents paid the schools full tuition, they were not depriving the institutions of property. Now, these are interesting arguments, and they're worth making. And the government, to no surprise, argued for a much more expansive definition of property, claiming that the defense attorney's very narrow definition of what constitutes property for the sake of a fraud charge was not actually supported by the case law. They cited the same cases as the defense, but chose language to quote, which seemed to suggest that the term property was a bit more vague and nebulous than simply the traditional interpretation. And the government at one point did concede that in the cases cited by the defense lawyers, the Supreme Court did refer to traditional concepts of property. But they point out that nowhere in the case does it say that the statutory definition is limited to that phrasing. To claim that admission spots should be considered property for the purposes of the fraud statute the government cited the fraud case out of the University of Tennessee Space Institute, UTSI. A bunch of people at UTSI were plagiarizing their dissertations and theses, and the professors permitted them to do it on the grounds that when the students graduated and got cushy military jobs, that they would direct contracts back to these professors. They were prosecuted as committing fraud, and their convictions were upheld when the concept of admission spots as property was specifically challenged. One of the ways that property is considered involves being able to control one's own assets. The government argued that the defendant's actions deprived the schools of information necessary to make discretionary economic decisions, thus depriving them of a property interest in their own asset. Having read through the motion to dismiss and the government's response, I think they both make good arguments. The decision was ultimately made by the Honorable Judge Nathaniel Gordon. Gordon was born in 1938. He graduated Dartmouth College in 1960 and Columbia Law School in 1966. He was appointed to the federal bench by George H.W. Bush in 1992, and he was and remains one of the most senior judges in the courthouse. 
At the time of this recording, he is still sitting on the federal bench in Massachusetts. Judge Gordon penned a long and thoughtful opinion, and he ultimately determined that while the definition of property is not boundless, it does encompass admission slots. The decision credited the argument of the government with respect to the UTSI case. Judge Gordon quoted that decision in describing the interaction between a university and a student as a contractual one. In return for tuition money and scholarly effort, the university provides an education and degree. The number of degrees available are finite. Awarding degrees to students who have not earned them devalues the degree for everyone else. The parallel was then drawn between an admission spot and a degree, as admission is a necessary precursor to obtaining that degree. And the ability to grant admission is an asset of a particular college or university and subject to its control. So the defense motion, while novel and creative, was denied. The judge determined that admission spots were considered property for the purposes of fraud. And this case is, again, different from virtually every other case covered in that there was no trial. Once this motion was decided, the remainder of the defendants, those who had not already taken up a plea deal, eventually wound up giving up their fight against the government. But interestingly enough, Lori Laughlin and Massimo Giannulli changed their plea after the motion was submitted, but prior to it being decided. We're going to get into the big issue in this case in a moment, but first we should touch on another unique aspect of this case. Both Giannulli and Laughlin pleaded guilty but not in the typical way done in federal cases. And to understand the gift that they were given by federal prosecutors, you need a very quick and dirty basic crash course in federal sentencing. It's very different than in the state system. In New York State, the prosecutor and defense attorney agree on what charge or charges the defendant will plead guilty to, as well as the disposition. 10 years, 2 years, 50 hours of community service, a job training program, whatever it is. The whole thing is worked out and presented to the judge who has to okay it. But if the judge okays it, then that's the resolution. That is not how the federal system works. In federal court, the government and defense attorney work out the charge or charges that the defendant will plead guilty to and preliminarily agree on what enhancements or mitigation is present for sentencing. In the federal system, the judge determines the sentence. There is a complex schema to figure out what justice actually looks like in each particular case. It's a combination of a vertical point structure and a horizontal criminal history scale on a table matrix. Your criminal activity is input into the structure, and you wind up with an offense level. That is your row on the matrix. Then you look at a person's criminal history, and the more significant the history, meaning the more convictions a person has in their past, the farther right you move across the various columns in that particular row. In each cell of this matrix is a range for a prison sentence. The lowest offenses range from zero to six months, the most serious range from 360 months to life, meaning 30 years to life. Okay, I just threw a lot at you, so let's just do a quick example to shed a little bit of light on this and make it 
digestible. Bank robbery, my favorite. Bank robbery is a federal crime. Let's say Richard robs a bank. He brings a realistic-looking BB gun into a branch of Citibank, flashes it around for a second before putting it back into his pocket and demands everyone there empty their pockets and the tellers empty the drawers. In order to ensure everything goes smoothly, Richard has brought a number of zip ties, and he ties everyone up in the bank by the ankles and wrists behind their back and has them all sitting along a wall. Richard does not know that the silent alarm was tripped before he could get everyone away from their desks. Richard is arrested, exiting the bank with a million dollars even. He's charged with bank robbery, and he's made the decision to plead guilty. Robbery on the federal level has a base offense level of 20. In this particular case, you would add two points because it was a bank that was robbed. You add another three points because a dangerous weapon was brandished. And yes, a BB gun counts as a dangerous weapon in the federal system. It would have been more points had it been a real gun. You also add an additional two points because at least one person was physically restrained to facilitate commission of the crime or escape. And then you would add three final points because the amount of money taken was $1 million. 20 plus 2 plus 3 plus 2 plus 3 is 30. So Richard's final offense level is 30. And now let's say this is the first time Richard is stepping outside the bounds of the law, so he has no criminal history. So he's at the farthest left column of that particular aspect. His guidelines range at a level 30 would be 97 to 121 months. So essentially more or less eight to 10 years. But in the federal system, this range is just the starting point for the judge. They can go above or below. They can give it a lot of weight. They can give it little weight. They can look at the situation itself and do essentially whatever they think is appropriate. So even if the prosecutor and defense attorney agree to a relatively low guidelines range calculation, a judge can determine on his or her own that this was a particularly heinous crime and give a hefty sentence. And you won't know what the sentence is until the day of sentencing, which is usually about two to three months after the date the person pleads guilty. And if you don't like the sentence, that is not grounds to withdraw your plea. So you are stuck with it. So taking a plea in federal court usually comes with a lot more uncertainty than it does in state court. Unless... The government agrees to make a plea offer pursuant to Rule 11C1C of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. This is a rarely used subsection of a rule, which allows the federal plea bargaining system to act like the state system, where the final outcome is already agreed upon. And if the judge says that they won't go along with it, the defendant has the option to decide not to plead guilty. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I have asked federal prosecutors for a Rule 11C1C plea offer. I have never been given it. Most federal prosecutors I've spoken to have acknowledged that they've never in their careers offered someone a Rule 11C1C plea agreement. It's very frowned upon in the federal system. But Lachlan and Giannulli received such a deal here. Giannulli knew he would be sentenced to five months in prison. 
Lachlan knew she would be getting two months in prison. It was all arranged and signed off on by Judge Gordon ahead of time. It's very puzzling to me that the United States Attorney's Office took such extraordinary steps in prosecuting so many people in this scheme for such significant amounts of money and then agreed to give them nothing but a terribly light slap on the wrist. Okay, enough about the sentencing oddity. This case is meaningful because it shows a very common scenario. What do you do when you have what you believe is one strong legal argument which could go either way? The answer to that can get tricky. And here's why. During the process of discovery, prosecutors are required to turn over to the defense attorneys the evidence that has been obtained in their case. If there's a crack to be exploited, usually it will arise in the discovery or in some fact given by the client, which is known to him or her, but is not known to the prosecutor. In either situation, this can become the crux of the pretrial defense. Now, we're going to get a little more technical and a little more complicated than we normally do. You listeners are my diehards, so I think you can handle this. It's important to grasp that there is not simply one defense to a case. There can be two. Sometimes the two are the same, but sometimes they're different. The defense that everyone is aware of is the trial defense. This is the argument made in front of a jury in which the defense attorney offers their narrative, their story, their version of events, wherein if the jury believes it, it will show that there should not be criminal liability attached to the defendant. We're all pretty clear on what a trial defense is. It's essentially everything that's contained in a lawyer's summation. But remember that a trial is mostly about determining the facts. The jury's job is to make a decision about what actually happened. It's the judge who makes rulings on the law. And during the trial, that's usually in the form of ruling on objections, where one lawyer questions the propriety of something the other lawyer is attempting to do. But before the trial, when the parties are still in the process of developing their narratives, getting their witnesses and trial exhibits identified and prepared, there is the potential for an alternative defense. This is a legal defense, and it often takes the form of a motion to dismiss. In the Varsity Blues case, the defense was that admission slots are not property, and therefore, even if we accept the facts as the government alleges them to be, legally, a conviction would not be possible because the government cannot make out the elements of the crime. This is a legal as opposed to a factual argument. This was a particularly creative and unique pretrial defense. Most often, it relates to something a little more common. I've made arguments that cases must be dismissed because the police conducted an illegal search or tainted an identification by either suggesting to the witness who they should pick or making it obvious by lining up five people who are six feet or taller and the suspect, a single guy who's five foot four. Once a judge has made a ruling on your pre-trial defense, it usually cannot be argued to a jury as a trial defense. Here's an example to help this become clear. Let's say that Jeff and some friends drive to a mall parking lot. Let's say they're joking around in the car, just sitting in the parking lot. They get out and walk around a bit, but they don't go into the mall. Now, they're not breaking any laws, 
Let's just say, though, that there's an unmarked police car across the lot that sees a couple of young guys horsing around, not really going into the mall, just parking there. And the cops take an interest. Jeff gets out of the car again, standing near the front passenger window, talking to his friend inside. It's a little chilly outside, so Jeff's wearing a puffy coat, sweatpants, and the cops notice he's also wearing a fanny pack. Jeff looks up, immediately recognizes that plainclothes officers are staring at him, because plainclothes officers are not nearly as unassuming as they want to believe they are, Jeff immediately puts his head down and starts walking in the other direction. Now, at this point, the officers pull their car around and chase Jeff down. They grab him, tackle him to the ground, open his fanny pack, and find a gun. After they finish congratulating themselves for being such stellar law enforcement officers, they had a realization. They've conducted a blatantly illegal search and Jeff's lawyer is going to claim that this was a Fourth Amendment violation. So the officers fabricate a new narrative that they called out to Jeff that they just wanted to ask him a question. And just then, Jeff started sprinting away from them. They also claimed that when they stopped him, Jeff was thrashing around and refused to let them restrain him. And then to top it off, they claimed that the fanny pack was actually open when they caught up to Jeff and they saw the gun before arresting him rather than after. Pleased with their story, the officers tell the district attorney that this is what really happened. And the district attorney elects to prosecute Jeff for criminal possession of a loaded firearm. Now, for the sake of our example here, let's say that there was a camera on that particular part of the parking lot. And let's say that the interaction between Jeff and the plainclothes officers was caught on camera, but there's no audio. What you can clearly see, however, is Jeff look up. He turns and starts walking away. You see the officers drive up, get out of their car, approach and grab Jeff's arms, tackle him to the ground, cuff him, and then take off his fanny pack and pull out the gun. Many times when there's a factual dispute, the judge will hold a pretrial hearing to determine the facts to which he or she will apply the law. That means that these officers would have to testify under oath as to what happened and be cross-examined by the defense lawyer. A defendant has the same rights as he does at the trial. He cannot be compelled to testify, but may do so if he or she chooses to. Our story here is an example of an all-or-nothing motion to dismiss. The cops found a gun. The gun was on Jeff's person. He cannot realistically claim he didn't know it was there or that it isn't a real gun. If he loses at the hearing, he cannot win at trial by claiming that the search was bad. The jury is there to decide whether Jeff was illegally in possession of a loaded firearm, not whether the search was good or bad. The most you could hope for in that situation is jury nullification, which is extremely rare. So you have the hearing and argue that the judge should suppress the gun because of the product of an illegal search. If the judge rules against Jeff and decides that since he cannot hear any audio in the surveillance, that he can't discredit the officer's claim that they shouted gun before tackling Jeff to the ground because they saw it in the open fanny pack, and therefore the search was legal because it was due to exigent circumstances. Since Jeff's possession of a gun posed a real danger to the officers, and according to them, they saw the gun, they did not need a warrant, as taking the time to get one posed a clear and present danger to their safety. As a defense attorney, you understand that this hearing is the entire case. 
If you lose the hearing, you have to get a deal because you don't have the trial defense. But of course, if you win, the case gets dismissed. Now, here comes the really tricky part from a criminal defense perspective. This situation happens when you're dealing with more senior, higher level, seasoned prosecutors, real veterans who understand the system, who aren't just newbies doing what their supervisors tell them to do. A savvy prosecutor will come to a defense attorney prior to the hearing and make their best and final offer, especially if they're worried that they may lose the hearing. They'll be clear. After the hearing, that offer is gone and it will never be this good again. So now comes one of the most difficult parts of the job, having the conversation with the client. The reason these conversations are tough is not necessarily that it's unpleasant to give clients the hard truth. Part of the job, you have to do that. You owe it to them, not to sugarcoat or embellish or sell hopes and dreams when you're holding an empty bag. It's not hard to tell clients the truth as opposed to what they want to hear, the hard part comes when they ask the inevitable question, okay, so what do I do? That question is hard because there's no right answer. When I represent someone, it's not my case. It's theirs. I don't make the decision to plead guilty or go to trial. I offer advice and counsel, but it's not my call to make. I've had plenty of conversations where I've told clients that it's in their best interest to plead. But if we go to trial, the evidence is likely there to convict them. And that despite my incredibly high view of my own capability and performance, I don't think we will win. And there's an important difference between telling a client what to do and giving them advice. I try very hard to make it as clear as possible that I am providing a rundown of the facts. This is the evidence they have. This is how I think they'll argue it. This is our defense. This is how I will argue it. And at the end of the day, I think X or Y has the stronger argument. Sometimes, though, it's very clear that the facts are not on your side. That's what happened with Lachlan and Giannulli. The government had more than enough to show exactly how this scheme worked, that they knew what was going on, and that they willfully participated in it. Massimo Ginoli was sentenced to five months in prison and fined $250,000. Lachlan served two months and was fined $150,000. That's exactly the terms laid out in their plea agreement. Neither daughter was expelled from USC as a result of this. In summation, I find this case interesting not just because it includes Aunt Becky, and let's be honest, who doesn't still have a soft spot for Aunt Becky, but because I find it really encapsulates a lot of the positive aspects of being a defense lawyer. I don't know Andrew Lelling or anyone on the prosecution team on this case, and it was a really big team. Despite the very meager jail sentences meted out, a huge amount of resources and man hours were poured into this case. I like to think it played out a bit like this, though. Lelling is having a meeting with his team. They've got the supervising FBI agents there. They're going over everything one last time. Seems open and shut. They've got the texts, the emails, the phone logs, the bank statements, the checks. They've spoken to the key people. The U.S. attorney convenes a grand jury. They indict everybody on the list. Big break for them. Rick Singer pleads guilty early. 
He confesses and confirms everything that they already know. Now all they have to do is sit back and wait for everyone else to fall in line. Then, instead of getting noticed that all of the other defendants are changing their plea in the face of overwhelming evidence, he gets hit with motion papers. A motion to dismiss on a claim that admission slots aren't property, and therefore this can't be fraud? I have to imagine, as he's reading through the papers, his first thought is to just dismiss this as nonsense. A ridiculous legal theory. But as he gets through the first couple of pages, I picture his face turning a bit. He goes from a dismissive smile to a bit of a furrowed brow to a real frown. This argument actually may have some merit, has some law behind it. Heck, it could win. This massive case that he's built, all the man hours of preparation, even the guilty plea of the ringleader could go down the tubes because of the definition of the word property. At that point, he had to really dig in. But that's the role of the defense attorney in this adversarial system. We push back. We make the government prove their case. We say we force them to meet their burden. Sometimes that means you pour everything you have into a motion to dismiss, knowing that if it fails, you're going to have a serious conversation with the client about their intentions going forward. Going to trial is not always in a client's best interest. I get involved in conversations all the time with people who are categorically opposed to plea deals. They don't believe plea offers should exist. They believe it's inherently coercive and that defendants are essentially forced into them. I will be the first to admit that there have been times where the government has tried to strong-arm a plea deal. I think about what happened to Michael Flynn, where he was told that if he didn't want to take a plea, they had enough evidence to charge his son as well. That type of behavior does indeed happen. But it's the exception, and it's a rare exception. That almost never happens in the real world. Typically, a plea deal is a way for a guilty person to accept responsibility in return for a reduced punishment. This is a good thing for guilty people. There are inherent benefits in both the state and federal systems for pleading guilty if, in fact, one is actually guilty. I will not let my clients perjure themselves. And what this means is I will not participate in my client pleading guilty if they tell me that they are innocent. I won't officially change my client's plea on the record unless they can tell me that they're pleading guilty because they are guilty of what they are pleading to. I get asked a lot also about clients who constantly protest their innocence to me when the evidence clearly shows that they're guilty. Often when I first meet a client, when they're a potential client, they'll downplay any role that they had in criminal behavior. Some will flat out deny any involvement. Some will minimize or say they didn't really know it was going to happen. Some make up excuse after excuse. Once I've had the chance to look at all the discovery in the case, I have a meeting with the client. We have a very honest discussion. I explain what the evidence against them is and how, if I were prosecuting the case, I would present it. It's one of the benefits of starting my career as a prosecutor. I understand how to build cases. And you'd be surprised how often the truth comes out at those meetings. Sooner or later, I get the truth from my clients. And once the truth is out, then you can have that discussion about what will happen if a motion to dismiss fails. 
It's possible the deal won't be as good as it was before a motion or a hearing, but it's virtually guaranteed to be better than a sentence after trial. What's really interesting about this case is that a significant portion of the defendants came together to file this motion. Lachlan and Giannulli were included. Their lawyers signed on to the papers. The motion was filed April 1st, 2020. The government filed its response on May 8th, 2020. Giannulli and Lachlan both signed their plea agreements on May 20th, 2020. And Judge Gordon's decision denying the motion wasn't filed until June 23rd of 2020. What I think this tells us is that their lawyers had a feeling the decision was going to go a certain way. Perhaps there was a comment made in court during an appearance after the motion was filed, or maybe their counsel just really didn't believe in the underlying argument. Either way, they gave up their chance to get the case dismissed in order to take the plea deal where they knew what the outcome would be. It's impossible to second-guess that decision. We just don't know what Track and Berkowitz knew and what inside information they might have been relying on to counsel Lachlan and Giannulli to plead guilty while a pending motion to dismiss was in front of Judge Gordon. Maybe the government told them that the Rule 11C1C plea was off the table the minute they got the decision. Who knows? But it is distinctly odd to take a plea while a motion to dismiss is outstanding. But I also think that it ended up working out pretty well for them. They each received a very light sentence, a fine that was likely not to be a big difficulty for them, and some infamous press to get them back in the public eye. Personally, I do feel a little badly for the kids, who I won't say had no idea. I'm sure they were a little surprised and curious as to why they were doing crew photo shoots when they don't row crew, but they didn't come up with or instigate the criminal activity, but their names were still dragged through the mud all the same. So I do have a bit of sympathy for them. And that's the story of the Varsity Blues case. Rick Singer's scheme to help wealthy people get their kids into the schools of their choice through bribery and fraud. Special thank you to Eric Stipe, who edited today's episode. If you want to get in touch with me to suggest a topic or a case, if you want to ask a question about criminal law, if you just want to send me a message unrelated to the show, please feel free to email me at insummationpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet me at insummationpod. I'm on Instagram at Insummation. You can visit the show's website, insummation.com, or check out the Facebook page. You can also, of course, look me up on my law firm's website, robertcgottlieblaw.com. And I am now even on TikTok answering some legal questions that people have posed to me. So you can find me there at InsummationPod as well. As always, I genuinely appreciate all the thoughtful messages I get and the discussions that they generate. If you disagree with me, you're always free to let me know what's on your mind and why, and perhaps you'll change my mind. Not too long ago, I was invited to be a guest on Andrew Heaton's podcast, The Political Orphanage, to talk about jury nullification and what it was like being one of the four lawyers representing Joaquin El Chapo Guzman during his federal trial in the Eastern District of New York. If you enjoyed the show here, 
I think you'll probably enjoy those episodes as well, so go check out The Political Orphanage. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe to the show. And if you rate and review it, it'll help other people find it as well. And if you're new here, please feel free to check out the entire prior catalog. As always, thanks so much for stopping by, and I hope that you'll come back for more.